everyone welcome to manufacturing up i am dave this guy up here is the the next 12 we are very happy to jump into episode 91 first episode of 2023 with jordan humphreys and drew horsley jordan drew welcome to the show thank you guys for being here thank you thanks for having me on again it's a pleasure gentlemen Really appreciate you joining us today, Jordan. I know we had uh, a few discussions with you, as Dave has mentioned. Uh, so maybe we can get a brief introduction from you and an introduction from Drew as well. Yeah, for those of you that don't know me, I am Jordan Humphreys. I own JMH Talent Solutions. Uh, we started in November of 19, so we just celebrated three years. Um, I do, thank you. I do uh, niche recruiting and industrial automation. That's all that I do across the U.S. Um, we've been doing that, like I said, for three years, expanding each year, and uh, it's going great. You've still picked a great, uh, if you're in industrial automation, you've picked a great career to be in. <laughs> awesome. Sure. I am Drew Horsley. I am the president of Malitium, president of a nation of one, as I say. It's just me. Um, a lot like Jordan, I, um, I, I'm a niche recruiter. I focus in industrial automation engineering. Um, I set up a lead team around May-ish of 2017. I've probably been recruiting about 16, 17 years in, in total. And I do really dig the industry, and I think it's a great place to be, whether you are the talent or you're finding the talent. So I'm um, glad to be here. Awesome. No, really appreciate both of you joining us today. I think it's going to be a great discussion We've certainly seen, I think, a lot of ups and downs last year. We've seen quite a bit of turbulence in the software industry. Uh, There's been a few interesting, I want to see, company takeovers, but also layoffs and on that side of things. Uh, But when it comes to the automation space, maybe like what are your general thoughts? Are you seeing, again, we talked a little bit off stream, but I've mentioned a few examples and we don't have to talk about those technologies specifically, right? But I know that robotics have been very heavily integrated. Are you seeing similar things across those verticals? Are you seeing things different in PLC, HMI, SCADA recruiting? What are your thoughts on uh, the industry going forward in 2023? Gordon? Oh, you want me to go ahead? Okay. So I would say that more of, of the same is happening, you know, from the last couple of years, it's, it's boom. <clears throat> um, we still need entry level, I would say, industrial controls, automation technicians, people that can program, um, can do a little bit of design, hardware selection, put a BOM together. Um, and then there's, of course, still needs on, on upper tiers all the way up to solution architect. Um, so it's, it's still going really well. Um, business is booming. Um, I have seen over the last year robotics in the uptick. Um, especially in food and beverage. Um, and overall, robotic sales have gone up. They're, they're becoming more popular. On my side, the talent side, you know, we're already at a dearth for talent and, and, and automation, but robotics is, I hate to say it, is even worse situation. There's just not a lot of talent out there, and that's the big thing. Uh, and when you say up. worse, I guess, again, just to be clear, it's that, there's been so much purchasing, I guess, of hardware that they cannot staff enough, right? That's what you mean by work. Yeah, exactly. Like we have issues, you know, we can sell lots of automation work, but you better have the personnel that can do it, right? It's it's hard enough to hire automation personnel that are going to do your PLCs, uh, packaging, skids, whatever. Uh, but purely robotics, I mean, that's it's, it's, it's easy being harder. 
You know, if it could take me an average of, uh, let's just say uh, two months to find you someone in automation, it might be four months, five months before I can find somebody that's going to fit your robotics. Uh, and that's, Again, it goes back to the the conversation that we've had last year um, going forward as become more popular in automation. What are we doing to attract the younger folk to to uh, seeing the possibilities? You know, when I was in high school, it was all, uh, or especially even in grade school, it was computers, right? These floppy disks. You put them in, don't touch the screen, and then, oh, well, now we're moving into Windows, and, and we're moving, it's computers, computers. You need to be in computers. Well, there's nobody telling us that for automation right now. And, uh, and the few that have done it have gotten really good results. Um, so, I, I, again, we need to focus on uh, our, our outreach to the younger folks and teaching them how to, to get into this industry. Drew, what are your thoughts? Are you seeing uh, similar things, anything different uh, on your end? What, what are your uh, thoughts on the industry in 2023? Yeah, um, I agree with a lot of what Jordan was saying. It's, you know, I hate to say it's going to be more of the same, but honestly, the in, in saying that there's a trend and a growing trend that, you know, what I call a starved market that simply put the demand for talent is much higher than the supply of talent. And by saying that things are going to be more of the same, that's not going anywhere is what I really mean. Um, not only is it not going anywhere, it's probably going to be further exacerbated because of things um, like the, the more of the prevalence in automation, the more dependence of automation. Um, the more business cases that make automation upgrades and so on and so forth make sense. Um, hopefully the more onshoring of automation that can happen. Um, it just yields this demand where everybody, whether they're an end user or an integrator is scrambling to find talent. Now to hit on the, on the robotics part of it, I really, um, I had a few robotics things here and there. Um, when I went to Automate 2022, I figured it would happen, but I got some more robotics positions in, and I made a, a pretty good effort in it, knowing I didn't have the automation network behind it, but still, you know, something something to go off of. And it's it's just, it's slim pickings. And if you find somebody, they're in the wrong town, or, you know, they're, there's a lot of people who are, most of them are gainfully employed. Now, another thing that I'm wondering is that I remember going through, you know, in school, there was like the robotics lab and a lot of kids would totally geek out and love the robotics lab, but it's kind of like where you would think that that would have grown more into more like, whereas like a computer science person can get real jazzed about getting into SCADA and getting into a software system. To me, it's like, is there, is there something going on at the root cause where there's not a transferable skill set from like a software development or something that's not being encouraged into robotics um, because there's some type of gap there that needs to be addressed. Um, also hitting on what Jordan was saying, a lot of that's going to come across with, with youth, um, getting people excited about youth programs. We really have um, a problem in the country with not having especially locally sourced talent. Um, and that needs to be taught and, and get kids excited with your STEM activities. Um, let them know that, yeah, it's cool to program, but hey, you know, um, look at this automation system. It doesn't always have to just be video games that you're trying to program. Like, look at the cool things that this can do um, and really kind of get that excitement that, you know, that, that I have and that most people in, the, in automation engineering share. Um, and, and I think that we'll start to yield some results. But for now, I mean, to kind of land the plane, um, we're going to see a lot more of what we've been seeing for the last few years in that regard. Awesome. I, I'm really, I guess, excited about the year. I'm, I'm, but, you know, on the... 
maybe on the devil's advocate side, are you seeing any interest to like pull back at all? Again, I'm seeing maybe recession discussion, conversations, some year I want to say in the market or any of your customers talking to potentially slow down in the year or you just see an upwards trajectory uh, with your clients at least or with your contacts? Uh, mostly an upward tra trajectory. Uh, people are still trying to sell. <clears throat> so I, I haven't really seen anything different as far as layoffs and stuff. We might see, you know, you've seen it definitely more in tech specific and industrial automation uses tech, but we haven't really seen it as much in our industry. Um, you know, if you work at a bigger company um, that's publicly traded and they're not doing so well and they've got to lay off, you know, but it's, it's, it's getting more to where we're selling, we're selling, and now we need more people to do the actual implementation commissioning type of work. Um, and, and, and like I said, last year, it's a lot of, we're trying to find our equilibrium. You know, it's still a new sector, new business, new companies, startups, maybe they worked, maybe they didn't, but we're, you know, as the years go by, we're going to find an equilibrium of the players that knew what they were doing, knew the challenges that were upcoming and uh, they were the best at executing. Makes sense. Drew, any signs of uh, hesitation on your end? Well, I haven't seen much on the, the requests for new talent as far as, as hesitation there. Um, one area, one area that, that it's kind of made me think of as far as anybody being hesitant um, is in the area of end users, especially in oil and gas, when companies are acquiring other companies, that seems to be the area of most movement as far as um, employees becoming concerned about the future of their position. Um, now, and, and in there, there can be hesitancy to hire because there's a lot of moving pieces and a lot of dust has to settle. Now, with the other end users and the other integrators for slightly different reasons, I can't, I can't stop new uh contacts of people needing my services it's you know at least one a week i mean at, at the very minimum i'll have one new linkedin message or email or text or phone call somebody who was referred um and you know i had a really telling phone call today um a gentleman had reached out about needing you know some field foremen and field technicians and there was just this kind of overall confusion as to what it kind of boiled down to is i don't get it we're, we're paying market rates, we're offering 401k matches, we have paid time off, we have, you know, 100% um, health insurance, we have all of these things that, you know, why don't people want to come here? And why aren't people staying here? And it's just, I, you feel bad, you feel bad for these for these hiring managers and business owners, because you want to help alleviate that problem. And it's almost like these days, as soon as you alleviate for it, for one person, you put somebody else in a pinch. You know, it's, it's that much of, I don't want to say a zero sum game, but um, there's only so many places you can pull from. And anyways, there's a lot of people out there that are hurting. And so I don't see any hesitancy right now. I really was struggling as y'all were talking to try to think of a situation where I was like, oh, by the way, ABC company, I know had some layoffs and it, that hasn't happened in any recent memory. And what are your thoughts? You know, I, I think that's a very interesting point. I guess, in my opinion, they're going to have to, either scale their salaries, increase maybe retention programs, offer like other benefits. So are you seeing that, uh, I want to say like trajectory in the industry? And if yes, what are they doing? Is it pure salary? Are they offering maybe different benefits to sort of balance out, you know, the 
possibility to be completely remote in the software industries? Like, what are you what are you seeing uh, from your side? I would say it's not that's not too much of an issue with integrators. They're pretty agile, flexible. Um, you know, and salaries they're a little bit more agile because they have a bill rate, right? You know, we need to up we need to pay our engineers more, so we up our bill rate. Um, as an end user, you can't necessarily do that. Um, but I tell you what, I would love to get in with a big end user um, with multiple plants and just sit down with their engineering and HR and and have a and get into their books, look where they can make uh, adjustments. Uh, salary is a big part of it, uh, but you know, an overall retention. Uh, how much overtime am I going to work? Am I on call? Um, are we doing new projects? Uh, or am I just going to be doing the same stuff every day? Those things go into it. Uh, but I would really like to sit down with end users because it's just so hard for them to attract and retain the talent right now. Um, and I don't necessarily think it has to be like that. Um, in some situations, it's going to be like that. Um, but I, I would relish the opportunity to be able to sit down and, and go through the rabbit hole of what can we do? Because I've certainly talked to enough, you know, what they're making, what their situation's like. People that have been at an end user for four or five months and they're already like, I, I can't do this anymore. I got to go somewhere else. Right. Drew, what are your thoughts? Um, I've seen certain programs and, you know, like as in, you know, a lot of the things that they haven't had to, I don't want to say basic building blocks, but let's say they don't have a 401k plan, then they'll add that. They'll maybe think of something that doesn't cost anything like an unlimited PTO. And then they have all the controversies that are inherent with that. Or maybe they'll just try to add a little bit of PTO. Now the remote aspect, um, most people have jumped on that for positions that can be remote. Now you have commissioning and you have other things, especially in the control systems world where you can't be remote. Whereas if you're on the SCADA side, it's much easier for you to have a remote capacity. Um, but one of the things that I've noticed is, let's say you have all the bells and whistles, like, um, you know, just an example, I work in multiple verticals, but just take an oil field company, you know, one of them may give you a truck allowance and pay 100% of your, you and your family's medical insurance mm -hmm. and have, you know, some other things like that, but they pay $3 an hour less, you know, and so it almost seems to be like that thing, like you're squeezing that balloon and it's just, it's just puffing up somewhere else. Mm -hmm. Um I think a lot of that has to deal with some stubbornness, but some people, you know, they still have margins to make. And I think that their margins are getting pinched in other ways because there's inflation and their, their end clients probably not letting them raise anything, if not asking them to push something down. Um, there's a lot of variables that go in to employing somebody and trying to make money, especially in this economy. So I think a lot of it is just being realistic. Like, employers like you can sit on linkedin all day and see everybody bash employers it's really easy to do it's like a sport um but it's really hard you know when because i've been at agencies where i've looked you know at income statements and and balance sheets and you're you're sitting there and you're talking with the owner about hey here's where maybe we can cut costs here's where you know this is going well so on and so forth and it it's a lot under that hood that you know more than you know it being okay to take a stapler home because the company has enough money you know it's like there's serious costs that go that go around. Um, and so anyways, I think the employers do um, the best that they can and the ones who aren't are losing out. And then here's the one last kicker is that the ones who seem to 
get to where they're paying like as well as they should and have like these, these really good benefits package is because they're in some funky town. You know, it's some location where they can't get people to go to. And so they're, they're biting off as much as they chew, can chew because they just need the talent that poorly. So there's just another example. Yeah. And, and if I can, uh, if I can jump on that, I, I think all of these are, are really, really good examples. I think that you see kind of two different levels, right? Especially perhaps in the oil field, right? Like they may go look at that extra two or $3 an hour. And depending upon what they're getting paid, that may be a lot for them. But I think that you also see other folks perhaps in the SCADA side where 3% probably isn't enough to, to make the move to the other organization. I think that many organizations struggle because they have kind of different thoughts, right? Or different kind of business outlooks and or there are a bunch of people there who are just terrible to work for or to work with. And I think that culturally we see, I guess my estimation is I would imagine more people change for cultural issues than they change for an extra three to 5%. If that is actually what is drawing people from one employer to the next. And um, I think many times, it, again, it, it's more than just dollars and cents, but that that is much more difficult, if not impossible, for a, a recruiter or anyone on the outside or anyone perhaps not the owner of the uh, of the organization to be able to go make significant changes. Yeah, yeah that's, a, that's a great point. Um, you know, depending on what industry you're in and the margins and all that, I mean, there's only so much we can do at the end of the day to where, okay, if I'm going to pay you what you think you're worth, I'm going to lose money. And mm -hmm. I didn't start this business to lose money, right? Um, it's... <sighs> In our industry, no, we have, we, I, we're, we're a professional industry. We don't have a lot of that, you know, well, I can make a dollar more over here or $2 more here, or, Hey, I'm only making 80,000. I think I can make 85 to 87 over here. We don't have a lot of that. We do have some, the other half, like you said, is culture. It's driven by the culture. I'm already making a decent wage. All right. I know I could probably make some more and that'll happen. Mm -hmm. But like you said, the people to here to work for are horrible. They don't, they don't know how to manage a project. They say one thing, they do another. And that's what drives a lot of our movement here. And, and it's a great time to do that because you have so many options of where you can go and try out different places that have a culture that's working. Ruth, that's. I, I, I do agree. You know, cultures, cultures, uh, you know, going to be one of the things that's ubiquitous across all things in business. The culture can make or break a company. And especially in the integrator world, I mean, your people are your company. Like that's the competitive advantage. I mean, the business models are very, very similar. Um, it's usually the scale and the scope is the only thing that makes them different, except for the people who has the better people. Um, but uh, so as far as the culture being very important, a lot of times with the culture, there will be things they, that people do like to be invested and so training programs, getting people, um, things of that nature, that can have some loyalty and some retention there. The flip side of that is, are you training somebody to get to where they're more marketable? Um, it's something that, you know, is, it can be of concern. I do agree that I don't think people are going to chase a dollar here or there. I do think culture is going to be a big, big part of it. Um, I do think that, and, you know, with the oil field example, it, it, just to make it out to be, 
like a lot of clients, let's say it is in the skater world, I can have a client that pays 115K and another client pays 105K, but the client at 105K may have way better benefits than the client at 115K. Mm-hmm. You know, that there is kind of a give and take there. Um, so, so to some degree, I do notice that there is a little bit of limitation on the employers, which kind of yields back to the culture being a big, a big deal. Mm-hmm. One, one segment I would say that fits less in, in the culture arena that may kind of buck that is the two to 10 year tenured folks are really seeing substantial increases in pay where they're willing to leave good cultures because they are netting $20,000, $25,000 a year more. Um, And so that's been prevalent as a result of the, the tightness of the labor market um, I the, just sorry, Drew. Just on a thought, they they make that money by leaving at the two to ten year mark, right? Okay, gotcha. correct. Sorry. Yeah. So once they get into, you know, they kind of cut their teeth on something that's a very marketable skill set. You know, um, that everybody is pulling. Hey, do you have this person? Do you have somebody? And all of a sudden, they don't have a big ramp up curve because they've been doing it two, three, five years, or they're a player on day one. I mean, they're they're writing their ticket these days. You know, to a degree. Um, but yeah, that's where they're really getting some big step ups. Other than that, yeah, I don't think leaving anybody's leaving for any kind of minor amount of money unless it's a culture issue. I, I totally agree. Gotcha. And to, to jump on that, it's a good point by Drew. In a two to ten year, you can make that jump if you're oriented to 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 get what you're worth, right? But it, it may not end up working out better. Yeah, I went over to this company, made twenty thousand more, and I spent five years there. But now I have the experience and it's like, you know what? I will take a cut of 15, 10, 15,000 to be at a better work culture because it's worth that much to me. I know better now. So there's a little bit of learning in your career too, right? I mean, that's just the way it goes for anybody. More experience you have, the more you know what you want out of it. Absolutely. If I can slightly transition this away from from culture, I want to talk about some in-demand job skills, uh, and I guess kind of both from the side of Jordan, Drew, what have you guys seen in the last 12 months? The, the top, you know, I don't know, two, three, five job skills. And and after we go through that, I'd, I'd love to get some kind of early predictions of are those the same job skills you think are going to be in demand for 2023? Or do you think you're going to see some different job skills um, in demand for 2023? So, so, Jordan, what did you have any particular kind of buzz uh, buzzword skills that continue to crop up over and over again uh, for your placements? Um, not really. I mean, it's more of the same. Uh, Alan Bradley uh, Rockwell is still the, the leader. If you're going to train yourself in any PLC or, you know, HMI, learn, learn that. Uh, Siemens would be number two for me. Uh, TIA portals doing some really good things. A lot of people are moving to that. Mm-hmm. Um, and then I would always throw like an Omron or a Mitsu in there um, to, to learn. Uh, those are good things that I've heard picking up steam back off B and R um, trying to think of any other uh, cat soft is another one. What about PLC uh, Next, the logo you got on your hat? PLC Next, absolutely. Oh, good plug. Good plug, both of you guys. I, I to, to, to jump on that, I'm excited to see what PLC Next and Phoenix Contact does once supply chain issues are corrected, right? Once everybody can get their hands on this, I'm really looking at what can be done with that. Um, that's, that's definitely some cool stuff down the line. Um, 
SCADA, ERP. Let me ask Jordan. Yeah, go. Yeah, I, I was going to say, are, so you, you listed some interesting hardware. Are there any other, are there soft skills? Or are there kind of other demands outside of, hey, you should be familiar and can go program on these platforms that you're getting? I mean, the, the normal stuff, if you've been around, if any kind of, I don't know if this is the question you're asking, if you have any kind of manufacturing plant skills, right? If you've been in a, a machine operator, you know how generally those things work. If you've done anything around uh, grunt work and electrical, pulling conduit, um, hooking things up, troubleshooting, right? Those are always great things to have in your toolkit if you're going to go into controls. Um, maintenance, you know, if you can get into maintenance, that's a good way to usually get your hands on some uh, PLCs that way. Um, trying to think off the top of my head of anything else, you know, ignition on SCADA continues to be uh, one that I hear the top and, and uh, most people want ignition people. Uh, that continues to be my number one resource in SCADA. Um, I did hear of one, I think you and I had a talk a year ago with another guy about Tulip and I did hear about them a couple of times this year, uh, this past year. And also Traxxas. I don't know if you guys are familiar with Traxxas. Traxxas, T-R-A-K-S-Y-S. Um, uh, AB InBev has, has used them for a while, I believe. Um, and now they're starting. They work really good with those kinds of operations. Um, there's a couple of uh, integrators here in Indiana that are starting to do other Traxxas, I think, in pharma applications. Um, so that's, that's one to uh, keep your eye on as well. Very interesting. Thank you for that, Jordan. Drew, Drew, what what are you seeing? What are you hearing about? Yeah. So as far as you know, I, I would definitely echo uh, Jordan's statements um, on the uh, you know on the control sides. The you know the Allen Bradley. You know, I'd also put uh, Siemens second, um, so on and so forth. Not to just parrot that, but um, on the on the software side, Ignition Skate is where I play the most. Um, you're still going to have, you know, Wonderware is still a beast in the SCADA world. Um, you're going to always have opportunities with Wonderware. Um, uh, you know, Signet, if you're in oil and gas, is still around. But one of the things you have to be careful with is, and one of the things I would encourage people to do is ask some people in the industry as far as which applications are going and which direction as you're getting into an industry. Sometimes the people will be asking for the skill set because they're doing a final cutover and they're killing that off. You know, they need somebody who knows it. Um, so those are just kind of something to, to, to be aware of. So enterprise SCADA platforms, anything that you have can do there because they're, they're becoming much more transferable. Uh, well, many years ago, it had to be this particular platform. Um, a lot of clients now are saying, well, if they have this any type of enterprise SCADA platform, then we can train them um, up from there. So I would encourage people to get involved um, with any of those. Now, another thing that's, you know, as far as people getting in the industry, computer science is getting very um, prevalent. You know, any type of Java programming, um, mm -hmm. Java. The one thing that's good about Java is that it, it, it can go for, across multiple verticals, multiple business units, you know, IT, OT. Um, so Java is a really, a really good one. Python's really taking off, Angular frameworks. Um, you're starting to see more of like your React bootstrap type verbiage, you know, a lot of stuff that I don't really understand. I just know it's new and like the, you know, the kids love it or whatever you want to call it. So, you know, <laughs> there's these things that are, that are coming out and I would just make sure that people are getting very familiar with that because, um, 
you know, anybody coming in with a strong computer science application background, especially with any type of industrial automation experience, is really going to have a lot of doors open for a very, very good, stable career. I'm telling you, it's the place to be. So, And I think that computer science majors, they have more fun when they come to the industrial automation sector. That's just my opinion, but I think they, they like it a lot better. Gentlemen, we had a, a question or I guess a comment on the previous topic. Uh, so I wanted to maybe throw it at you. So speaking of culture, are you seeing, you know, with uh, with the higher or increasing turnover rates, are you seeing these end users or uh, integrators correct maybe the way they uh, approach these new hires? Are there better programs to help them maybe grow in their career? Are there better like mentorship programs? Are you seeing any kind of, I don't want to say like shift, but more willingness, I guess, to retain through new initiatives versus, hey, this we're just going to hire a new guy who's probably going to leave after a year or two uh, that he's gained a lot of experience. Culture is an enigma across all businesses, right? No matter what business you're having, how do we set up a good culture? And everybody's got an opinion on it. Um, but... I've, I've seen a lot. At, so again, getting back to agile end users, they are kind of what they are and it's hard to kind of change that culture. Um, mm. But I see it more in system integrators that they are, you know, talking to us, what are people really looking for? How can we do this? Um, so I've seen a lot of talk. I've seen a lot of slow adaptivity and I've seen some good companies that have taken on really good culture initiatives only to see them fail. Um, so I've seen kind of everything, right? And it's unfortunate, and I say that across all business lines, you can always kind of go back to culture. You can always go back to egos, right? And who's making decisions, what decisions? Um, and, and you could be at somewhere for three years and you love it. And then maybe somebody leaves or maybe somebody thinks differently and they're making different decisions and the culture isn't as good. And then it changes, right? Um, so culture-wise, yeah, we need to do better. And that's just not in our industry everywhere. Um, and it's it's the little things. It's, it's like, you know, treat people as you want to be treated. Um, those kinds of things, right? We've really got to institute people that are leaders that really think like that, um, that aren't as, you know, what what's in it for me? What's my next career step? No, I'm the CEO or I'm the president. I'm the engineering manager. That's my title right now. Who's working under me and how can I make them better? Right? Just simple things. I need to talk to them once a week or daily. How's your day going? Hey, how's this new process working? Hey, how's that? What do you want to do on your next job? Okay, here's the steps you need to do. Six months later, have you taken those steps? I'm actively encouraging you, right? Those kinds of things. Um, so overall, to land the plane, um, you know, you, you see a lot of people talking about it, but not a lot has been executed very well. And when you see those shifts go from good to Drew, what are what are your thoughts on the same? Um, <clears throat> well, the whole time I'm sitting there and I just keep coming back to the word frustration. You know, I think that a lot of um, managers and companies are just frustrated about the culture thing because uh, a lot of them are trying or have tried and 
if you've tried and it hasn't worked, it's hard to continue trying those things. You know, if you think that I'm going to let everybody be remote and everything's going to be sunshine and rainbows and you're still losing people, well, then you may just say, okay, you know, everybody needs to come back to the office anyways, because that didn't work. You know, um, some it's, there's, it's easier to have a good culture when the company's healthy. You can bring somebody into a successful integrator and you can keep them interested on new projects. You can have them be empowered to take on things because there are things to take on. When a company is struggling, you know, and maybe they need that next hire to really get them into a new client or to kind of turn, you know, to, to make something better. It's, it's hard to, to get that person, put them on, the, on that and then, and then get something to keep them engaged because they just need them constantly doing the same thing. That's the whole point of it. So, um, so that can be a problem or they're a startup and they have no culture. And then people are kind of worried about, about startups and the fact that there is none in the, in the financial things that can come along with that. But um, there, I, from what I've seen, most people will stay at a place where they feel like they're treated like an adult. They're allowed to do their job. Um, they expect some kind of supervision. I mean, things can't be so hands off where it's just completely deliverable operated where, you know, all of a sudden there's just an excuse for this deliverable and that deliverable because I've been there and you give, you know, you give a mouse a cookie <laughs> or something, a mile or something like that. And it just gets nothing but worse. But anyways, um, but somebody that they that they know has their best interest in mind and kind of one of those managers, the sense that I get is one of those managers that's very content with where they are in their career and know that, hey, I'm I'm good. I'm going to be good if you're here. I'm going to be good if you're not here. While you're here, I really just want to help make you as best as you can be because you're part of a good team that I'm on and, and I'm good, you know, and it's just sort of that natural contentment that I don't know if I'm getting kind of like theoretical too much, but it's, it's just that type of person. Um, they're usually career people. They've usually been in a company a long time. They're usually really cool to work with from my standpoint and people just want to stay there. Um, for the most part. And then also um, just one, one other cat, just yeah, people also have to be realistic that turnover is going to happen regardless. There's always going to be some type of turnover. We're talking about how to limit it, not to almost, you know, virtually eliminate it. So. And, and you know, if I can add to, to both of your comments to maybe piggyback on an earlier uh, conversation, I don't think it's always just to blame the, the end user or whoever's hiring, because I think it's also, managing expectations right of the person coming on board and again i've seen some of these cases and i'm sure you you've had even more of these conversations but people can sometimes be very eager to get to that next level right and they after a year even two years in their career start to try and push for that next step and for better or for worse it's just not the right time and so you know because they get maybe denied or they're not put up for that promotion they go elsewhere right so th there's a fine balance also, I want to say uh, both from the, the recruiting side as well as the person coming in. And I think, again, the company that's left with, uh, you know, I want to say a sour taste in their mouth after somebody leaves very quickly is a bit more cautious, right? Getting that second, giving that second person a chance. So, and again, I'm sure both of you are having these conversations, but I want to make sure that uh, we sort of play both sides uh, of the field, that both Sort of the, the candidates as well as uh, the hiring managers are trying to solve this sort of multi-dimensional yeah, problem. And, absolutely. And I was going to say, and if I may, may add on to that, I think all of these are, are really good points. 
I think kind of just, just beyond culture, like when we talk about losing people um, or different initiatives, I think it's a lot of going in with, with known expectations and having good conversations, right? So if I'm a candidate, I want to know what type of manager the person is, right? Like, are are they someone to kind of give me the the big picture and let me go run at it? Are they someone who wants to kind of go micromanage every detail? There are, there are positives and, and negatives for, for everyone with those. So if I go in and I know who the manager is and kind of what type of the work of the work it is, and they know how I like to work and we all know, like, it could be that someone is going to come on to do a project or someone is going to come on for a couple of years, or it could be the, hey, I would like to move up. I don't want to go do commissioning for my entire career, so I'm happy to go work the next year or two years as long as we know that if I'm going to stay within this organization, there needs to be a place for me kind of higher with, within this organization. And I think that those are conversations that we might not historically have been having, but our conversations that, that we should be having, especially as we see multiple generations uh, w- within the workforce, and we have seen the propensity of groups to be able to go kind of bounce from uh, f- from one job to the next because, hey, th- this was fun for four months or, or six months or a couple of years, but now I'm ready to go on to the next challenge and managers, ownership, leadership uh, feel blindsided. Uh, I'd like to kind of get the, the thoughts and feedback for, from Jordan and Drew. Is that something that you guys are coaching candidates to, to have these conversations? Is this something that you're coaching uh, potential employers to have these conversations? Is Are these conversations that, that you guys see happening uh, perhaps in, in the workforce in general? Jordan? Yeah, I mean, you know, to Vlad's point too, it's both sides. I mean, you know, you could look at somebody who went somewhere for a year and then they were there for two years and then here for four months. It might not have been the places they were at. It could be the person, right? And they could have moved on for good reasons. They could have moved on for toxic reasons. Who knows? But it is both sides of the coin um, that that make the cake, so to speak. Um, and, and more to your question, Dave, you know, as a recruiter, I feel like it's my, and to manage expectations, again, there's pros and cons to a job description, to a place at work. There's pros and cons to hiring a candidate, right? So let's manage expectations and be, uh, let's be upfront on both sides, a candidate. Here's, here's the great things about this job and what you're looking for. This is the reason you came to me. You're looking for A, B, and C. I can give you this at this new job, but you said you don't want on-call support or weekend work. You're going to have to do both, right? Mm-hmm. That way you give, and then the, and the a manager too, hey, this is somebody that's going to hit a home run technically for you, right? But they, what you might consider a job hopper, they've been in a couple places only for a year or two years, and that'll prevent you from hiring them. I'll say, you know what? This person's looking exactly for what you have to offer. Right. They've moved on because they didn't have A, B and C. Your company has A, B and C. So it's a conversation on both sides to you know put all of it up front and see if we have a match. That's basically how I want to do it, because I don't want any surprises if they ended up hiring and, and a month later, the candidate called and says, this isn't what I thought it was. Or the manager's like, yeah, this candidate's not. And I don't want it to be because of something I was not up front with. I want everybody to know what they're getting into. Absolutely. Drew? Yeah, and on that, so as far as 
what I'll usually, sometimes the candidate will outright say, you know, I'm looking for, for this, you know, a lot of times it's like, I'll just say, what are you looking to improve upon? What is it about your current position that maybe, you know, you're looking to change, um, to kind of get a feel for, um, you know, what, what could be that thing that the employer that would need to be that one piece of the puzzle to see if that does match up with what the employer needs. Um, so those are kind of the things that can be very sort of like checkbox, you know, it's this or it's that. A lot of it comes down to, and that's one of the things that I think is good about working with a seasoned recruiter is that I know the feel of somebody that like, I've been working with some clients for 15 years, you know, mm -hmm. and I sit there and it's like, I know how they work and I know how they operate. And I almost know, almost like I've almost like I've worked there. And I know that this person's not going to jive with how they do things, mm -hmm. or I know this person's cut from that cloth and they're going to fit in really well there. Um, now, having said all that, you can be in the industry 40 years and you still have a new client, you know, mm -hmm. so how are, you can't replicate that all of the time. Um, so a lot of it is, um, you know, if somebody doesn't feel challenged and you need to make sure that they're feeling today. I had a, a guy say, I just want to make sure that they're aware. I don't want to be a sole contributor that I want to be managing and leading a team. And so I made sure that I put in there in my in my little notes, you know, He's wanting to make sure that he's managing people. He's not just being a sole contributor, little things like that. But once again, all I can do is really lead horses to water. My main job is to get two people on the phone with each other, you know, or Skype or whatever. Like that's my main job. And then once that happens, usually they'll get a feel for the most part about whether it's going to be a fit or not. Um, but to make sure that I'm not wasting anybody's time, which is communicating well and not wasting people's time are like my two most important things about my job um, that I think you have to do well as a recruiter. Um, but so just to make sure that we're not spinning wheels, I take care of the, once again, the, the checkbox things, but between my own intuition and then their initial conversation, usually you can get a pretty good feel if that's going to be um, a good match or not with a limited amount of time. Yeah, Drew Absolutely. makes a great point with um, knowing your clients. The longer you know them, the more you do. I mean, you can, there's, I'm sure Drew has a couple of clients just as me, you know, and I'd say, hey, I don't even need to look at my notes. I know where you're going to fit, what manager you're going to work under, what their style is. Here's exactly what you're going to travel. Here's exactly what you're going to encounter. And that, you know, that's great because we can tell them exactly what to expect and know whether or not that's going to be a good fit. If I can uh, shift gears just a little bit to, again, an earlier conversation we started on the, on the technical side, we had a question, you know, uh, related to maybe different technologies. So the question is with regards to supply chain issues that we've seen uh, last year and I think are going to continue maybe in 2023. Are you seeing any of the, I want to say like companies that have traditionally used, you know, one of the two biggest platforms or any other platforms for that matter and are now looking to switch over or maybe looking for engineers that previously only had Alan Bradley and now they want Alan Bradley, Siemens, Omron, Mitsubishi, like whatever, you know, that might look like so that they could start experimenting just to, so to speak, like cover uh, in case something does uh, continue being, uh, I guess, like such, such long lead times continue to hit us. Yeah, I haven't really seen anything like that as far as changing, you know, people coming to me and with different requests um, because of supply chain issues. Uh, so I haven't really seen too much of that. Um, 
I've heard of other people, you know, hey, I can't get this certain hardware. What can I use? You know, having to Frankenstein a little bit um, and, and do that. But most of the time they've got somebody on staff that's already been able to do that. Um, so I would say, you know, ancillarily, I've seen like uh, BNR, Beckoff, TwinCat, you know, some of those have increased in popularity. I don't know if that's because they had more availability during this and we could reach out and put their stuff in. I don't you know, know exactly why that, um, but no, not too much of those conversations that I've had so far. Yeah, I haven't, I haven't really seen anything that would lead me to believe um, that talent request shift had been a result of a supply chain issue. I do, um, you know, having a breadth of skill, especially with integrator clients is always a plus. Um, and the bit of robotics that I've done, you know, they like to see as many, you know, brand names across there as they can, you know, with hoping to have a few specialties. Um, but I haven't seen, have heard anybody say, hey, we're short on this. So can you find this? I, I think all of those are good points. I, I think we, we've all talked to end users who have kind of in a pinch used different hardware. I think for many, especially large end users, it is extremely difficult to take the, the one brand that they've had on the wall and go start to add other brands to it. It is, especially for large organizations, it's very difficult, if not contractually disallowed, um, which, which can cause other issues. Uh, yes, which can absolutely cause some other issues. And so I'd like to, to come back and get some advice from everyone. Oh, Jordan, you, you have a thought. I was just going to add, you know, some of my bigger clients on that issue, they changed to having their, um, uh, their clients basically sign off and pay for the hardware when they when they initiated the project um, instead of waiting. That makes sense. I have lost Jordan's audio. Uh, I, I yes. think, yeah, okay, perfect. Well, nope, Jordan, I, I, I can see your lips moving, but I can't hear you talking. So with that, we're going to come get some advice for everyone after uh, after we thank some folks, I'm right? Back. Perfect. Sorry. Perfect. Uh, so this episode is sponsored by Profit by Design, which is us, right? So Profit by Design is the answer to the questions, how can I run more efficiently? How can we be more profitable? How can I retain my good employees? It's a three-day process in which we work with your employees to understand the expensive problems that happen on the plant floor and then create solutions that are net profitable in the first 12 months. Typical results are 20 to 100x return on investment. We've got a stack of case studies from prior projects in our careers that are net a million dollar profit or more. If you're looking to run more profitably and figure out how to retain your employees, check us out at profitbydesign.io or drop Dave a message. That's profit, the letter X, design.io. And we look forward to chatting to more people about it and talking more about it in, uh, in future segments. With that... I want to hear some. I want to hear some advice, right? So I think Jordan Drew, you guys probably talk to more end users looking to hire and talk to more people looking to get hired than uh, well than anyone I know, uh, which which is a good thing. So do you guys have some some good advice that that you typically give uh, give potential employees, candidates looking for for new jobs before they go in? Uh, to have these conversations, Jordan. I'm sorry, I couldn't. I don't know if I'm hearing. Go to Drew real quick. Drew, okay, perfect. Drew, 
Do, do you have some some some, uh, some advice, typical advice that, that you give to candidates um, b- before they go have kind of initial or, or on-site interviews with, with um, potential employers? Um, so the, the, the main advice I, I, the main advice I give them is just to be confident. Most of the things with, um, with people going through a process is it's usually new to them or it's been a while they have a lot at stake. Um, and so a lot of times it's just, you know, almost like a know your worth type of type of thing. And you'd be surprised how many times I, I, I put that hat on. Um, but you know, be prepared, know the company, look up the person online. They'll probably have a LinkedIn profile. Um, know, you know, make sure you're answering their questions, but be concise. You know, you don't need to start getting into a bunch of information that wasn't asked or that's not relevant. Um, you know, be polite, you know, back when people used to have, you know, in-person things, eye contact, you know, that kind of thing. Um, you know, other than that, it's just know, know that you know what you know and go in and just talk to the person, you know, have confidence. Sometimes I'll be like, look, you're a badass. You are, you need to know that whether you get this job or not, does not change that fact. Just remember that, you know, and just, and just ha- try to have them go into it. And that's the best I, advice I really think I can give. I, I think that's good advice, not just for interviews, but for everyday life. Uh, so, so, so thank you for that, Drew. Uh, Jordan, do, do you give uh, similar advice? Do you give different advice? What, what does your advice uh, sound like? Yeah. And, to, and to know what you do know, like what Drew so eloquently said, I'll, I'll say the opposite. It's okay to know what you don't know and be honest about that as well. You know, somebody, have you ever done anything in ignition? And like, oh, well, yeah, I've been on the, the uh, website and I did the core certification and, 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 and yeah, yeah. No, just say, no, I know that they have inductive university. I've been on there, but I haven't done it yet. I haven't had the time. It's something that I really would like to know. Just be honest. Um, and then the other thing is, you know, go in with confidence, you know, treat it almost like a first date. You know, you're dating this person as much as they're going to date you. This person's going to want to hire you as much as you want to work there. So don't go into it like, oh, I hope they like my answers. I hope they like me. I really hope. No, be confident. Know what you want to know going into it with prepared questions and be confident in asking them that. Uh, hiring managers are always impressed when they get ans- or questions that they weren't expecting. They always tell me that. Like, I was impressed by Jordan when he asked uh, this. I, I didn't know. I was kind of caught off guard. <laughs> that just shows me he's thinking, you know. Um, so that, that would be examples my of those? What's Sorry that? to interrupt. Maybe you have some interesting examples that you can share, uh, share on, the, uh, on the live podcast. Well, about what? Of such I, I, questions, of candidates asking interesting questions. Oh, you know, just, uh, I'm trying to think of one in particular, but you know, uh, if, if you're being interviewed and you're talking to the manager, you know, asking them about, well, what led you to taking this job? And, and, you know, when you took this job, what were the metrics going into it that you would measure yourself being successful? And now that you've been in this position three years, have you met those metrics? You know, it's like, whoa, they're kind of asking, flipping the script on me. And, and then you get the manager to talk about their experience there. And now you get more insight and thinking, oh, okay, I think I would like that experience. Or no, that's, that's not the right path for me. So anytime you can get somebody else to talk more, they give more details and that'll give you a fuller picture of what you're getting into. 
makes sense. I like that. Drew, I was going to say, Drew, can can we ask, do do you have any good uh, stories of really good questions or questions that you suggest your candidates uh, ask while they are interviewing? Um, I mean, to be honest, I don't, I don't go through a ton of interview prep. Mm -hmm. Um, I don't say that, I don't think there's a magic question to ask. I encourage them to make sure if they're asking me a question, I will tell them, make sure you ask them that in the interview, because I want you to hear that question straight from the horse's mouth and that answer straight from the horse's mouth. I absolutely do that. I make sure that anything that I think needs clarification. So I guess I take that back. I will make sure that they address that in the interview. Um, As far as any other things like, you know, those good questions that Jordan brought up, um, I kind of leave it, you know, I I, kind of leave that conversation to be as as natural as it's going to be. You know, to Mm -hmm. to me, it's like when people click and they hit it off, they do. And so I'll encourage people to get the meat out of that conversation that they need. But the sizzle, I think, is going to kind of be there or it's or it's not. So that's just that's just me. If that answers the question. I, I, I love that. I'd like to dig a little bit into kind of best practices for, for people and companies looking for new jobs. Right. So I think many of us have have been there where you go, you see an interesting job. Maybe you talk to someone and then before you either get an offer or don't get a job offer, it's, I don't know, 12 weeks and six interviews and, you know, a, a couple of dozen emails. What, what is your, your guys' suggestion, uh, maybe to end users, maybe to kind of potential employers of, I guess, how quickly should we be hiring and what, what does that process look like? Kind of best case scenario. Drew, I, I'd love to get your, your thoughts on that, please. Well, that, that's a great question. And that, that varies wildly. Um, I have, so, I mean, just a month or two ago, I think it was in November or even December, um, you know, Hey, so-and-so has, um, you know, an offer and they have one week to get back to the company. Mm -hmm. And so you've got a week and they turned around, um, two or three rounds of interviews and assessment test and something else got the, got, got the offer out. And the guy, either started today or starts Monday. Um, It's it's crazy. Like when a company wants somebody and has hiring serious, they can move that quickly. Now, do I expect that? No. People have other things to do with their jobs than, than be as reactive as I want them to be. This particular situation has a rock star of an HR manager who was able to, to really, you know, move some mountains to make it happen. Um, What I really like to have, you know, it, if you can keep anything within two weeks, I'll give you a month, you know, I can work with that. If it starts to draw out any longer than that, you know, as a recruiter, I have to, I have to make sure that I'm representing everybody equally. And then you have to start having those conversations with the clients that, Hey, you know, there's a lot, you know, there's a lot going into this. Are you kind of serious or or not, you know, and then kind of, kind of navigate, navigate that. But as far as um, advice for people going through those, um, uh, situations. It's, you know, trust your recruiter. Um, if you're one of the main things to do is always make sure you have any, as many lines in the water as you can. Like I, I tell everybody who I'm working with, you don't have to only work through me. I encourage you to keep enter until you have an offer letter in hand and a start date. I encourage you to make sure that you are interviewing to look out for yourself as much as possible. Don't you go back on a counter offer, but you, you know, make sure you're getting, make sure you're getting all of the, um, 
you know, of all the opportunities that you can. Absolutely. Um, through me or anybody else. So one of the points about that, as far as long drawn out positions is that you'll, if you have as many going as you can, let's say you have 10 and let's say eight of them are drawn out. Well, that means two of them aren't, you know, mm -hmm. like you'll eventually find those who are, who are, that are tighter and you won't be as exposed. Um, if you only have one or two of those, you know, and they're both being long and drawn, long and drawn out, you just got to keep your head up and keep going forward to it. You know, the employers um, will lose out on a lot of talent having, um, you know, the flip side of that coin is the employers will lose out on talent doing that. Sometimes the people that they'll hire have been, they'll take the job because they've been waiting so long, but they're not happy about taking it because they feel like they got strung along for a long time, you know, and that's not cool. It doesn't look good for company culture, um, the non-responsiveness, not getting back to people, all that kind of, all that kind of stuff. So anyways, I, I hope that that maybe answered a little bit of what you were looking for. Absolutely. I think that that was great. I want to hit on counter offers, but first I want to get Jordan's, uh, Jordan's thoughts and concepts on what is the, the correct duration? How, how quickly should we turn around interviews from, from go to either job offer or no? Well, the important part about this, and, and Drew did a great job explaining that, that part of it. And what I would like to add is whether you're an end user or a system integrator, if you need to hire someone and you've got a candidate, whether your internal recruitment found it, whether it's through a recruiter, external, um, if you're hiring someone in an excuse me industrial automation mm -hmm. and you've got a candidate, they have three to five other people, companies that are interviewing them. Mm -hmm. Okay. So if your normal process is to interview three or four times and it's going to take a month before we get back, we're thinking about it. Okay. We're going to extend an offer. Wait, where, where'd that candidate go? Oh, you mean that candidate I interviewed with you a month and a half ago? Yeah, they took a job a month and a half ago. They're gone. So that's why I try to do a really good job. Any new clients, I tell them that. I said, this is not like recruiting in any other positions, accountants, uh, other engineering positions, whatever. It, you know, this is, this is the lay of the land. And you've got to be ready to operate. Just like Drew said, you know, hey, I've got a candidate you're interested in. Hey, he's being interviewed and he's in the process of getting an offer. So if you want, do something like Drew's company, uh, his client did. You're going to have to do that. Um, but if not, okay, like Drew said, I can give you up to a month. But remember, if you're going to offer them, three to five other people are offering them. So you're not only competing for the talent amongst candidates, you're competing for the talent amongst other companies that are competing with you in that same pool. So that's why I try to let everybody know, know what you want. Define your process, make it fast, and let's get a hire done. Absolutely. I, I love that. Uh, Vlad, Vlad, you have thoughts. Well, I was going to uh, make a comment, you know, to the previous, and I guess I'm starting to take the side of the employers a little bit more in this conversation. Uh -huh. But I think it's also important to recognize, you know, once they maybe miss that opportunity on a good candidate, at least from my experience, we could be waiting, you know, six months to get uh, somebody like, Good. I want to say like somebody's resume for that position again. And so I think it was very critical to move quick. Otherwise, again, because of your own internal processes, you just lose that candidate and it could be six months. It doesn't mean that, you know, once you lose one, you're just going to get a, a chain of new ones next week. So it, it's important and to realize Vlad, that as well. And Vlad, if you're a system integrator, you needed to hire someone. Why? Because you sold some work, right? 
you know, and now you can't find anybody, that customer sitting there going, when, when is my control system coming? So, and yeah, and that's just the thing as recruiters, Drew and I, if you hired us today to hire, uh, you wanted an automation engineer. And by the end of the week, you know, we could, if we wanted to bring you five to seven candidates, we would, but there's a reason we don't give you five to seven candidates because there are five to seven and maybe there are one to two and you're like, ah, I don't want it. And then three months goes by and you're like, Jordan, why haven't you given me anybody else? I, I told you. There might be one or two, and it might be another month or two before I have someone else to even consider. I, I think that, that that is very good. I want to hit on counteroffers, uh, but before I let Drew talk a bit about counteroffers, I will say, if you guys don't follow Drew on LinkedIn, he posts some of the wildest videos, including one that had like, I don't know, advanced calculus math talking about counteroffers, if I remember correctly, on the whiteboard. But, but Drew, give us give us the rundown on counteroffers and if people should take them or not. Isn't it so, the great white chopstick of knowledge? <laughs> the great chopstick of knowledge? Yeah, it's probably <laughs> behind me in my drawer. Um, so... <clears throat> I want to make sure, so there's two types of counteroffers. There's to make a counteroffer, which is great. I help out with that all the time. My candidate gets offered 95K in two weeks vacation. They want 100K in three weeks vacation. Great, let's make a counteroffer. Not at all what I'm talking about. There's taking a counteroffer, which is when you go to put in your notice and you advise your current employer that you're leaving, they make a counteroffer that they're going to be paying you more or give you some promotion or whatever to get you to stay and take it. Um, so that type of counteroffer, especially because here's where the real split comes is some people are okay. If you literally sign a contract, accepting a position, and then go tell your employer that you're leaving and still renege on that contract and stay where you are, to me is completely unethical. If you want to make a change, then make a change. If you, I'm not even talking about man or woman of your word stuff, you know, which to me is enough breakable as it is. If I tell you something like that, I'm going to do it. Um, but to sign a document to say that, like, this is what I'm going to do. Everybody's celebrating. We took all of this time. We had a common goal. We achieved it. Here's me signifying that we achieved this goal. And oh, by the way, I'm going to come back and pull the rug out from under you because I got offered $5,000 more at my current employer. Or they're finally going to give me that promotion they didn't give me for three and a half years until I finally told them I was going to leave. I mean, it's just, I, I just, I don't see that as being an ethical practice to, to sign a document with well intentions and to put people in a very poor spot because you choose to go back on your written word. I don't, I don't like it. I would agree with that. But what about if you, I guess, you know, you receive an offer and you're still, I guess, like pondering, you're talking to a lot of people, probably your spouse, you know, your family, and you're still maybe trying to figure out if it's the right fit. If you're, again, because it still, I think, involves a pretty big decision depending on what the relocation is. And you go to your employer and you're like, hey, like, well, I'm considering this offer for reasons ABC. Like, what are your thoughts uh, about like a counter offer before you signed or, or agreed on the, the offer? I, I'm, I'm, if it's a, if it's a situation where they're being honest with their employer and they're not, they're not exploiting the situation. I'm perfectly okay with that. That's very normal. It's a very important, uh, there needs to be a, a big notion here that I, it's, I understand how important of a decision it is and how much of a livelihood 
vain it is for somebody, their, their life, their loved ones, everything that's theirs, it's not mine. But um, so for them to go and say, hey, I'm considering making another move. Um, for example, somebody very close to me was in a spot where once I found out what they were making, I said, wow, you're being drastically underpaid. You know, your market rate is this. So she went to her boss and said, hey, love my job and everything. However, it's come to my attention that my pay, my market rate is actually this, you know. So she ended up being able to get a raise in that regard. Now, that wasn't a threat like I'm going to leave, but it was like I'm being contacted by people who are saying they're going to give me $20,000 more than I'm being paid right now, you know. So all that stuff is completely ethical. If somebody says, hey, we would like to offer you some, something like this, and you don't say anything, then, you, then you'd be like, okay, thank you, I'll get back to you. Then, of course, you can take that to your boss. I personally, if I said, I'll take it, I accept it, and, you know, back when I drank Cheers the beer or something with them over it, then that's what I meant. Like, to me mm -hmm. personally, I would not go back on that regardless of what the other offer was. Now, I'm understanding enough, and that's what I have to tell myself, to be okay for people who do even verbally accept an offer. I get it. And one other thing is that back one example where it's still okay is that there was a lady and I love her to death and she had signed an offer, but this was way back when, before there was any talk of remote positions. And she lived out in a nice little town in Colorado and had to drive an hour and a half to work and blah, blah, blah. And when she gave her notice in, they said, we'll let you work from home. And it completely would alleviate her entire life situation. So mm -hmm. I understand that. I'm talking about your general run-of-the-mill counteroffer thing. So I just wanted to make that clear as well. No, I, I think that, that that's a good point. Jordan, have you ever seen someone get a job offer, go to their employer, have their employer give them a counteroffer, and it worked out well for them? Because I, I have one example in which I can tell you it worked out well, but almost exclusively I see those people – um, being managed out or we're immediately have to go find someone to backfill that position because this person is obviously not going to be here very long, even after we've given them uh, th this raise or this promotion. Yeah, yeah, exactly. Um, you know, I think the number is 80%. Whoever uh, accepts a counteroffer, 80% are gone within six months. Yep. either fired or they, they ended up leaving. Um, I'm trying to think of what you, you had first said, because there was a point I was going to say it. I can't remember it, but you know, going back to counter offers, I have personally, since I've owned my own business, no, I haven't. Um, before that I've had other people that have used me for an offer to go back to their original and, and get upped, um, that way. Um, but yeah, I mean, it, it doesn't work out for a reason. Now, are there outliers? Are there exceptions to the rule that prove the rule? Absolutely. Uh, I wouldn't, you know, unless I saw that, you know, I would, I would always say, hey, don't take the counter offer. Mm -hmm. uh, most of the time, the situation is somebody's like, hey, I'm just not happy with where I've worked. They haven't, you know, promoted me. They haven't given me more responsibilities. I don't make enough, whatever. And I say, okay, so you're looking at new, new role. Oh, yeah, absolutely. Well, here's one I've got. That works great. You interview. They want to make an offer to you and yeah, you're making 90. This company offered you a hundred. You're like, yeah, let's, let's do it. Right. Okay, great. You signed, maybe made a verbal. And then you always go back to your current employer and say, Hey, I'm putting my two weeks in, um, you know, and always, whoa, whoa, why, you know? Oh, well, you're going to get 10 K. Oh, we'll give you that. 
Oh, you will. Just like that. I've been asking for a year. You said you were going to do something. You said you'd talk with Steve. You said you'd talk with Barbara, but you haven't. And then all of a sudden I come and go somewhere else. And just like that, I've got the 10,000. Hmm. See, there's a reason you wanted to leave. And you reached out to someone like me. We gave you what you wanted, a different option, a better option, right? Why go back to somewhere you didn't like it? It's just like being uh, in a relationship with a significant other. You know, they cheated on you. Well, you know what? This isn't working out for me. I'm going gonna, I'm gonna to go with someone. Oh, baby, no, no, don't go. I'm sorry. You know, uh, I'll fix this. Oh, okay. Well, well we're back together. What, ha- what happens? Those people break up. Or the guy that got cheated on or the girl got cheated on is miserable in the relationship. It's the same thing at work. If you take, if they offer you a counteroffer and you take it, and you're going to say, wow, I got what I wanted. Everything's great. But that's not actually what happened. They panicked. They want you to stay because the workload they would have to take on themselves or disseminate it to somebody else that doesn't know how to do it. So, okay, here's another 10,000. Just stay on while we find your replacement. Mm-hmm. or the work conditions, the culture, it doesn't change. And then they're in the back of their head. They're saying, I wonder how much longer they're going to be here. They just got their raise or they just got their remote work and it starts to create a paradigm, right? And we get psychological. So those, those are reasons why they just don't work out for the most case. Uh, if you're unhappy, you've addressed it. They haven't done anything. Find somewhere else. It will be better. There are better situations out there. Move on. And, and if I can, I guess, like put a thought on there this time on, on the opposite side, you know, speaking to a lot of engineers, at least I would say that not everyone's a good negotiator or maybe can manage some of those conversations. And I would say, again, from my experience, it happens that you sort of don't talk to your managers about some of the discontent that you're experiencing and so maybe going on for six months or a year, you start to build this, uh, I want to say like resentment of the employer, yep. but you haven't necessarily expressed, you know, like where you'd like to go or how you would like this to change. And so by getting one of the offers through a recruiter or a different like end user, it gives you enough of a boost confidence to go say like, hey, well, look, somebody does value me a little bit more. And that sort of opens up the how to say like the conversation, I guess. And obviously I understand statistically, it's not the best uh, approach to things, but I could tell you again, there are individuals who are experiencing maybe more anxiety to sort of reveal uh, what is, uh, is bothering them at their employer. Certainly. And I, and I agree with you. There are people out there like that and that's how they would handle it. I would never recommend handling it that way though. Um, just going into your boss and saying, Hey, I got another offer. I'm going to take it. If you're not you know, going to give me X. Right. And then right. It, that starts to create psychological paradigm of, well, this engineer is, you know, he's run, running the show now he's going to want this and that. And now I'm going to give him the worst assignments or I'm going to treat him differently. Right. Um, sure. if you, if, if you feel like you're being underpaid or if it's, you know, I want to work remotely, go in, have a conversation with someone like Drew or I, right? Uh, Get some market information, build your case. You're going to go into the manager and say, I don't like this A, B, and C. Don't stop there. Give them the solution to A, B, and C, right? I'm only getting paid 90. Uh, I had some 
conversations with professional recruiters. They gave me some market insight. I went and did my own research and I should be right around $100,640. That's, that's my, you know, now you've backed it up, right? And now you come to them and you're like, hmm, they've done their homework. I, I need to, uh, I need to come at this correctly. And if they come back and say, hey, we can't do that. Well, now you have your answer. And if you really want a hundred, you need to go somewhere else. I like that. I really like that. Dave? I think all, all of these are very interesting points. I, I will, I guess, make two. Um, if you go have a very candid conversation with your boss about that, be prepared for them to not react positively. Um uh, be, be prepared for them to not react positively uh, to the, the points that you're having, uh, especially if it's, uh, I want a 10, 20, $30,000 raise. M- most of the time, th- those aren't in the budget and you're, you're probably going to, to blindside them. Um, or, or even if it's just cultural things, many of them are, are outside of the control that, uh, that anyone in particular has. And, and two, my thought every time I've changed jobs is if I am frustrated enough with the job that I have now to go through this arduous process of finding a job and interviewing and getting a job offer, I'm not doing it for funsies. I'm doing it for a very particular reason. And that's why I'm going to go follow through uh, with that. It, it looks like we, we've lost Jordan, but I actually want to slightly. Oh, it looks like Jordan's coming back. Um, so I, I, no, hey, Jordan. hey, Jordan, welcome back. Uh, welcome to Manufacturing Hub. We're ready to start the show. Yes, but no, I, I, w- I want to go ahead and kind of wrap, uh, wrap, wrap down. I know a lot of this has been uh, kind of a lot of kind of the, the general end questions that we have. But before we get to the questions that we ask everyone, we, we need to hit on, on a topic. Uh, it's Drew's hot sauce. So, so, Drew, outside of these great whiteboard videos that, that you make uh, to, to provide us with, with amazing insight, you also make hot sauce. Can you give us the, the, the quick rundown of, of how you got into hot sauce making and how now a ton of, of industrial professionals, including Jordan, uh, have this hot sauce at home? Yeah, actually, I keep here's some right here. That oh, I keep. Yes. Got a lot of glare on that. But anyways, so. <clears throat> Long story short, it ha- or we'll see how short it is, but at uh, COVID, I got bored, and I've always loved hot sauce. I always look at the ingredients, um, and then finally one day, I'm like, why don't I just make my own? I don't really have much else to do. So I went, uh, you know, you look up, you know, somebody makes theirs this way, somebody does this, somebody does that, and then I remember things that I had seen, like labels along the way, and it's like, well, maybe that would made that one good, and so on and so forth, and I tweaked it down to a few recipes and found one that I liked and tweaked that. And then it became like my set recipe. And so I make it, I actually just got my notification today. I, I started off making it in just like one, one, uh, what'd you pot. Yeah. And then now I do 16 pots at a time. 16? Um, yeah. It takes me like over half a day, about three fourths of a day to make, but that those 16 pots of the five ounce that I just showed you make about 80 to 85 bottles. And then the three ounce one, it'll make about 120. And those are the ones I take to the conferences. So I'm going to try to get about 450 to 500 to take to automate 22 and uh, in May. Um, but yeah, I have a Shopify thing, you know, I sell it online and it's, it's grown legs for sure. It's a lot of fun. Hey, Drew, do you yeah. have the OEE on your operation? I do not. No, I know I some a- guys that could help you out with that. Yeah. Right. 
<laughs> I, have, I have a lever. I actually, I got a bottling machine with, the, with like a lever that with yeah. a nozzle because I was trying to fill them with a funnel and it just, I'd spill so much. So I have like a, an operation. I got a little factory in my garage. Yeah. Oh yeah. Awesome. Uh, that is, that, that is a bigger operation than even I could have, uh, e- even I could have uh, predicted that that's awesome. So, uh, so, so uh, I want to get some some future predictions, right? We, we, we've talked a bit about future predictions. One of my favorite questions is uh, is for people to predict the future, uh, the, the future of, of talent. What is that going to uh, to look like? So, Drew, outside of the fact that you're going to make I don't know a thousand bottles of hot sauce and sell out of it uh, this year, can can you give us uh, give us some future predictions, please? Um. Well, the, the future predictions, a little bit of what we hit on earlier, I see, I see more of an emphasis on automation. I see more old equipment needing to be replaced. I see more of a movement socially, at least I'm hoping, to get more manufacturing at home. I see some government programs trying to make that um, easier uh, to happen. Um, I don't know that much about it, but I, if I'm hearing anything about manufacturing in the USA, I like it. Um, I think that computer science uh, degrees are really like those and industrial engineering degrees are really where somebody would want to be coming out of school. I think getting into um, the software and the mechanical side, being able to bridge that gap um, is going to be only um, only makes for a more stable career going into this. Um, I think that a lot of the software development is going to get around a lot of the IIoT stuff. Um, you're getting a lot with big data machine learning, things of that nature. I think things are going to continue down that path. Um, I think that the possibilities are just endless. I think that applications like Ignition are going to continue to refine and challenge the market. Um, yeah, so all, I think all those things are happening. I think it's going to be, I think automation is going to be in a, in a very good bubble in 2023 when I think some other areas of the economy may be struggling. Amazing. Thank you, Jordan. What are your, what are your predictions? Yeah, I mean, more of the same um, of that we've seen in the last couple of years. Um, again, I think our big choke point is talent uh, to drive it. Are we going to do more automation that's going to make us more efficient? You know, visualization, um, flow charts, uh, things that don't necessarily require labor, you know, uh, technological improvement and innovation, right? Or are we going to use it more to automation to replace the non-existent labor? Or a combination of both. Um, I see, you know, manufacturing coming back here. That's great. Where do we get the talent? Um, we still have to have machine operators. You still have to have all this, you know, industrial automation is not the only one hurting for talent. Um, so that's the big question for me. Do we use automation and we still need some talent to drive it? And we're, we're, we're going to struggle with that, adopting those kinds of people and bringing them up through the ranks? Or are we going to turn our focus on automation to, hey, the labor is just not there and that's not going to come. We've got to use automation to come up with solutions other than that. Um, the other one that I, you know, that is hand in hand with that, um, and I don't know much about is chat GPT that that come that had come along um, and then also some low code uh, platforms, right? Okay. Do those, uh, you know, in chat GPT, I'm not as familiar with it. I've heard some good things and some bad things. It's, it's a long ways away from, you know, anything meaningful maybe, uh, but low code, you know, can we develop some solutions to where we don't need those first line programmers, right? And we can run it through a program and, and we don't, 
we don't have to go searching out for programmers as much, you know, are we going to see something like that? Uh, that's what I kind of want to see, but uh, for the future, but as far as this year, I, I just see more and more people wanting to utilize automation, spending the money. You know, again, we have the money. We just, there's a lot of it is talent driven. You know, uh, you might have five or six people that are building new facilities and want automation, but maybe we only have enough staff in the country to do two of those projects right now. And the other four or five, you're going to have to wait until those two are done. Is that the situation we get into? I, I think that those are all very good predictions. Thank you. Uh, we want to talk about some content recommendations. So, so Drew, when you are not making your own videos or, or you're on hot sauce or, or hanging out with us here on Manufacturing Hub, uh, do, you, do you have some good uh, content recommendations, whether podcasts or blogs or, or YouTube videos, uh, YouTube channels that, that you like to listen to? Um, I'm not big in any of those areas, just shooting you straight. What I, what I do, the way that I've learned my industry um, as far as any kind of content is that when I'm going through and there will be um, it'll either be something by inductive automation or it'll be something by uh, integrator or a PLC training company. And it'll say, you know, what is SCADA? And you click on it and then it's like a YouTube video. But this is how SCADA operates. And, you know, what is an ERP? And what does that have to do with SCADA? And, and then, you know, over the years and over the years, you just start building. And every time I would see something, and that's the thing, I guess I could tell people, just be curious. If you're, if you're getting into something and you see an acronym and you don't know what it is, look it up. And if you, when you look it up, you don't know what that means or how it applies to anything, then look into that, you know? And so my knowledge, I guess you could say service level, but I know enough to know about what people in automation do to at least get my job done, if not be a little scary with it. Um, so I would say um, to do that. And then another thing is that always make sure that you're utilizing um, not just network so much as connections, people that you know, who know what you want to know and ask them questions. Um, I used to take managers out to happy hours when I was first getting into automation engineering, or if I had an engineer who would stay on the phone with me and had the time, I could start asking kind of questions. So use any, any type of resource that you can to familiarize and to educate yourself on what you're doing, because that's really what it kind of boils down to. But no, do I have like a, hey, watch the, you know, the John Doe podcast or whatever? I don't have anything like that now. No, perfect. I appreciate that. Jordan, we've gotten a number of really good book and content recommendations uh, from you over the last uh, year and a half or so. What do you have for us today? Nothing new on the books. And I'm actually, I've got, there was one or two I saw over Christmas break that intrigued me, but I'm, I'm forgetting their names right now. There's a couple out there that I want to get a hold of. Um, content, again, I think the last time I was on, we were talking about the automation ladies, uh, uh, mavens of manufacturing. I might have that wrong and I apologize. Megan Zimbia, mm -hmm. Zimba, again, sorry if I messed up your name, Megan. Uh, Nikki Gonzalez, Alicia Gilpin, um, they're doing really good. Uh, Dave and Vlad, obviously, with their podcast. Um, are really good. Uh, Phoenix Contact, Ira uh, Sharp is always really good um, doing stuff. And to Drew's point, you see more of it. Be curious, connect. Even if, you know, they're just a controls engineer in Washington and you're in New Jersey, connect. Um, there's a great community. And I've seen some people, uh, Josh Farghese, uh, uh, that we all know, um, the community has really gotten to know him and he's a great guy. And I've seen him benefit from it. I've benefited, benefited from it. Um, you know, running my recruiting business. There's a lot out there 
so get connected, uh, share some messages, and don't be afraid to make a post. Ask a question, 30 second video, you know, try it out, get connected. Look. Let me ask you maybe different type of content. And just because Drew mentioned automate, uh, maybe like conferences for 2023 that you're planning to attend or looking into, like, what are your thoughts on, on that side? You know, that's a good question. I have not been to really many of them, if at all. Uh, automate last year, I wanted to go, but it was, uh, uh, we were buying a house and it was last minute. So I wasn't able to. Drew was able to go. I talked to him about that experience. Seemed like it was a good one. Automate's a big one, lots of people. So that'd be one that I would like to get to. Um, I thought about the, I know uh, in Orlando, the A3, um, but I think you have to be a member. I don't think it's like a trade show or a booth, you know, anything like that. A3 is a good um, association, but yeah, there, there are a couple of them that I would like to get out to uh, this year and hit that scene. Uh, I've seen a lot of people like Chris Lukey, um, uh, Manufacturing Millennial, Jake Hall, um, Will Healy, like they've done a lot of cool stuff at, at, at these and everybody's kind of getting together from the community we built in LinkedIn to, hey, let's go over to here and have a drink and, and share. So it's just another opportunity uh, to collaborate. Interesting. Drew, what you mentioned Automate. I know I saw that you were at ICC last year. What are your plans this year? Are you going to continue to go to conferences? What, what do those look like? Yes, so I'm going to be at Automate um, again this year, and I'm going to be at Ignition again this year, ICC. Um, I will more than likely be at ICC every year that they still allow me to go. So that's going to be the set one. Um, and then uh, as far – because I know Automate's not going to be next year because it's every other year anyways. Mm -hmm. So I'm probably going to try the CSIA um, Control Systems Integrators Association. I'll probably go to that conference. Um and so that, that's my game plan right now is to attend that one, that one next year. But I promised my wife no more than two conferences a year um, while the kids are so young. So those are yeah. my two. Yeah. No, the, the, Automate's those, not uh, in 2023? It is in 2023, but not in 2024. Right. COVID they, yeah. yeah. It Got usually it. skips, but because of the pandemic, I think they stack two of them. That makes right. Awesome. No, no, I appreciate it, guys. Uh, last question to go around is who should reach out to you? Who do you want to talk to? Kind of our opportunity to thank you for coming on and sharing your knowledge with our listeners. Uh, Drew, we'll, we'll, we'll go to you first is, is who should reach out to you? Who do you want to connect with uh, both employees, uh, employers, uh, kind of any and all of that? Yeah. So if you are anywhere in the control systems or SCADA world, you would want to connect with me. Basically, the reason for that is that it makes it easier for me when I first get a position and you would be the front line of me to, to source. So you would want to have that connection um, and have at least some type of relationship with me. So if you're a SCADA integrator, if you can program a PLC, um, if you're you know a good field electrician, um, but, but anyways, anybody in really automation would be okay. The hottest needs are always gonna be PLC programmers and SCADA integrators. If you're looking to hire those people, you would wanna get with me as well. Um, you know, whether you're an end user, an integrator, whether you need a contract or, or direct hire firm, um, you know, whatever. That's one of the good things about working for myself is that I'm, you know, I'm able to, to get whatever kind of solution um, would need to be there. So anybody, whether you're looking for a job or looking to hire, I'm not a bad person to know. So love it. Thank you, Jordan. Who, who should, uh, who, if, if people haven't already connected with you uh, from our other conversations, who should connect with you? 
So if you're trying to get hired or you're going to make a hire in industrial automation, get a hold of me. Um, on the candidate side, I've had some people I've known for a couple of years, and then I placed them. We, mm-hmm. we had conversations, maybe we went and got a drink, something to eat, saw each other fair, had a conversation. Uh, I've had people that connected with me and we found them a job within a week. You know, so there's all kinds of different conversations, salespeople, uh, uh, engineers, you know, solution architects, whatever. Like I said, it's industrial automation. Give, give us a call. Uh, I do everything through LinkedIn. So you can find me through LinkedIn. Um, I'm on there all the time. That is always the best way to get a hold of me. Awesome. I appreciate it. Thank you, Drew. Thank you, Jordan. Thank you, everyone, for, for coming to hang out with us here on, uh, on Manufacturing Hub. Um, if you haven't done so already and are still listening in podcast form, please give us the thumbs up. Please rate us five stars. Please hit the subscribe button. It helps on a bunch of things. If you guys are on Solus PLC watching us live, uh, hit the hit the like button. Hit the subscribe button. Solus PLC almost at thirty five thousand subscribers um, wow. right now, which is uh, which is awesome. And then please follow us and do all of those things on LinkedIn as well. It helps. Um, I will shout out manufacturinghub.live, which is our website. You guys can go uh, check in and be reminded of, uh, yeah, be, be reminded of the upcoming episodes every Wednesday at about four o'clock East Coast time. And then every Thursday at some point, we will drop the podcast episode. Um, until next week, we'll see everyone soon. Thank you. Bye bye. Thank you, Jordan. Thank you, Jordan. Thank y'all. Thank you, guys. Appreciate it. Thank you.